As we continue worshiping this morning, we invite you to turn in your Bible or Bible apps to the words of the Gospel according to Mark, the third chapter, beginning in the 20th verse. Let us receive the word of God. The crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, he has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed, the house can be plundered. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister, and mother. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, send forth your Spirit and renew the face of the earth, renew your church, renew foundry. Be with us with Spirit power. Help us receive the word that you have for us today. I pray in the power of Jesus' name, amen. Jesus was a master at getting into good trouble. In Mark's account, the rumblings begin that time that four people dug through the roof to lower their friend into Jesus' healing presence. And Jesus simply in that moment does what Jesus does. He releases the friend from paralyzing guilt with words of affirmation and forgiveness and an affirmation of the man's agency to rise and to be free. There were some scribes there that day who were concerned about all this, evidently because it challenged their understanding of God and of what kinds of healing humans can do. The case against Jesus continues, and it continues to build. 
when he is caught eating with sinners and tax collectors, those deemed hostile and unruly in matters of religion and national loyalty. The questions and the tests just keep coming. And Jesus is tracked literally and watched as if he's a criminal. Folks just wait to catch him in a scenario they can use to accuse him. But Jesus' words and actions continue to draw large crowds as we hear at the beginning of our text today, so many people to engage that there wasn't even time to eat. You see, Jesus was just being himself. Jesus was just doing what he was created and called to do. His identity and his power stirred up controversy and trouble. And it wasn't just the religious folk who had concerns. We hear at the beginning that Jesus' family comes to restrain Jesus. And again, if you were with me at the beginning, you heard me invite you to have your Bibles ready. If you've got it, open it up. Take a look at this. So um, I want to make a, a textual note here. Verse 21 is a very ambiguous phrase in the original Greek. Some translations refer not to family, but to Jesus' friends or kinsmen or his own people which could mean all sorts of things, tribe, region, nation. At the end of our text, verses 31 to 35, the language in the Greek is very clear that Jesus' mother and siblings arrive, Jesus' blood family. All this is to say, it's not completely unreasonable to suggest that Jesus was stirring things up in his immediate family in his broader community of friends and tribe, and in the religious community. And what we see happening in our passage for today is a very familiar tactic of response from the human playbook across the ages, when someone is causing good trouble. You slander the person and you gaslight the people appealing to their religious and their moral scruples using archetypes that trigger fear. And this is often done, this play, this familiar play from the human playbook in response to those causing good trouble, this play is often made to distance ourselves from or to undermine the acceptance of people we don't understand or who threaten our sense of what is right or of what's familiar or who we fear will take something away from us. The initial verses of our passage might reflect Jesus' friends and hometown community being concerned about his well-being in the midst of all those crowds and taking on so much and thinking he can actually do anything at all about all that suffering. 
or they might have been embarrassed by the chatter about Jesus on whatever functioned as social media at the time. Regardless, the text is clear that whomever these people are, they come to restrain Jesus, believing he is, quote, out of his mind. And that's a pretty decent Greek translation. The scribes then pile on with the claim that Jesus is possessed, that he has Beelzebul, which is another name for Satan or the evil one or the tempter. They claim that Jesus is filled with the devil, that his actions are driven by the evil one. Jesus is literally demonized by those speaking for religion. And Jesus' response to this is to simply point out the absurdly illogical nature of the scribe's assertion. Why would Satan destroy Satan? And then we get to three verses of scripture that have puzzled people for centuries, beginning in verse 28. What is all this business about blaspheming the Holy Spirit and eternal sin? I found it helpful to look at the Greek word translated blasphemy. It sounds like blasphemy in the Greek, blasphemia, which means it has, as most of these words do, a variety of ways that it might be translated. It can mean speaking ill of that which is good, failing to acknowledge what is truly good, defaming, reviling, slandering. Another way the word is described is calling good evil and evil good. Jesus is clear in verse 28 that people will be forgiven their sin and their blasphemies. Then in verse 29, things get confusing. In the Greek, I want to note that verse 29 does not include the word in the Greek that is the word for never. It's not there. The line says, whoever shall blaspheme, which might be understood as when you blaspheme, there is not forgiveness, not never, not. There is some language about eternal and sin. Now, Jesus isn't mincing words here, to be sure. But the issue is less about damning people to a state of eternal sin and more about calling people to stop doing the things that will always disconnect us from God and others. Namely, to reject, ignore, or deny the good gifts of the Holy Spirit at work in others and in the world around us. Stop trying to tell people that something is good 
when it's clearly harmful and that something is dangerous when it's clearly life-giving. When and as long as you continue in this behavior, you leave yourself in a state of disconnection, hamartia in the Greek, which means missing the mark, you are sinning as long as you do these things, reject, deny the work of Holy Spirit in others and in the world around you. When you call Holy Spirit something that is bad, when Holy Spirit is good, you are sinning. And this kind of sin does have eternal consequences. You see, Jesus was accused of having an unclean spirit says that in verse 30. And this whole thing is because it was that was said. Jesus was accused of having an unclean spirit. And Jesus is simply pointing out that this is not true. Such an accusation is blasphemy. Calling evil that which is good. Jesus isn't filled with unclean spirit, but with Holy Spirit. The acts of compassion and mercy and healing that are drawing crowds are not fueled by evil intent or by devils, but by love and the justice of God. Jesus won't let others define who he is or call evil or unclean that which is beautiful and powerful and life-giving and healing in him. On this first Sunday of LGBTQ Pride Month, this is a beautiful thing to remember. All of us are made in the image of God, and Jesus reveals to us what it looks like to bear that image fully in the world. And part of following Jesus is to emulate the one who refused to be defined by others' attacks and misunderstanding, but rather who claimed his identity and his power and offered both to the world in love. Today, again, we proclaim without equivocation that LGBTQ plus people are beautiful and beloved of God. No matter what slanderous, blasphemous things people or church or family members have said, to call a clearly fabulous, loving, powerful, smart, creative, faithful person who happens to be LGBT or Q evil is just stunning. Makes no sense. And as long as this blasphemy is allowed, as long as it continues, sin is propagated. It keeps going. For ages, people have used that same old playbook 
against all sorts of people. We've long been trained to think of some people as bad, as outsiders, and as certainly not as part of our family. Sometimes this is overt training, and other times it's learned through the way society is organized. Many of you will know that I grew up in very small town, Oklahoma. My town, Kiefer, is located just 20 miles southwest of Tulsa. I moved back to Tulsa after seminary and served on staff of the United Methodist Church there for a couple of years before moving to D.C. in 1998. Over the past weeks, I've been newly grieved and angered at my experience of growing up in a place where the worst act of racist violence in our nation's history occurred and not being taught anything about it. In case you don't know, last weekend was the 100 year anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre when the thriving, affluent African-American community in Greenwood District, also known as Black Wall Street, was attacked and looted by a white mob. Its citizens were assaulted, countless persons were killed, and buildings burned to the ground. Lives, livelihoods, and legacies were destroyed in a matter of hours. In the wake of the violence, 35 city blocks lay in charred ruins. More than 800 people were treated for injuries, and the reports at the time said the deaths were 36, though now historians believe that as many as 300 people may have died. I remember once as my mother and I were driving along Interstate 44 through the city, she told me that the area adjacent to where we were driving at that moment had burned down a whole section of the city, I remember her saying. I think she told me that African Americans lived there. I may have added that part, I don't remember. And to be clear, I don't blame my mother. I watched recently the PBS documentary called Tulsa, The Fire and the Forgotten. By the way, shout out to Foundry's own Michelle Martin for her narration of the film. Watching that documentary, I was struck to learn that some black residents of the Tulsa area only learned of the atrocity years later, when in 2001, an Oklahoma State Commission issued the first comprehensive official account of what happened. This is confirmation of the depth and the breadth of the intentional cover-up, the gaslighting, the erasure from memory of an experience of such magnitude the erasure through fear and control and the power of the pen and of the pulpit. 
No one was ever charged with any crime. And as often happens, it was the residents of Greenwood who were blamed for inciting the riot. As the Reverend Floyd Brown, an African-American pastor in Oklahoma who himself didn't learn of the massacre until 20 years ago said, I think the ingrained despair caused people not really to discuss what took place and the hurt that they felt in the aftermath. This is certainly not the first time that I've pondered and lamented the radical racial segregation and silence about race in the place in which I was formed and the ways that has affected and infected my perception of reality. Certainly there are good and beautiful things about my home and my upbringing, so many. But I was kept from knowing. Growing up in a culture that pretends something didn't happen when it did, or is silent about violence inflicted, or lies about what is real and keeps whole groups of people separated from one another so that some don't even know the others exist nearby. And like everywhere, that allows casual racist references and images and slurs to appear in the regular cadence of sight and sound. All that along with the racial tensions reverberating through the atmosphere in the Tulsa area, under the surface, like a mass grave. All that has to do something to people over 100 years or 1,000 years or 10,000 years or to eternity. You see, as long as this kind of thing is allowed, as long as it continues, sin is propagated. Maybe even something we could call eternal sin. It will be eternal until it stops. And as it continues, it is soaked up into the minds and hearts and spirits of unsuspecting people like a virus. For all of us, and it is all of us in one way or another, who have been taught in various ways, consciously or not, to separate, to slander, to ignore, to deny, or to demonize, or to do violence to any person or group of people. The good news for all of us who've been taught these kinds of things. The good news is that we can wake up and work to live and to love differently. And we can do that by the grace and the power of Holy Spirit. In the final frame of our gospel passage today, Jesus' mother and brothers and sisters come calling on him. And when he hears that they're present, he doesn't renounce or rebuke them in any way. Just before we know Jesus had said, we were told Jesus was speaking in parables, teaching. 
And when the family arrived, as I read the text, Jesus continues teaching, using that moment and their arrival as an opportunity to bring his point home. The point is about family, about what connects us, not what divides. Those who slander Jesus and whisper lies and accusations against him sow division, likely because of religious loyalty and gatekeeping or because of tribal or national loyalty or gatekeeping or because of discomfort, fear, jealousy. But here's the thing. Jesus is not out of his mind. Jesus is in God's mind, has God's mind, has God in mind. Jesus is not filled with demonic spirits, but with holy spirit. And people through the ages may try to undermine Jesus' mission of saving love, of forgiveness of sins, of reconciliation, and of liberation, but he's not having it. Jesus came to dismantle the tribal and the religious boundaries that allow massacres to happen with impunity that name a beloved child of God as three-fifths of a person or as abomination or as unworthy of God's love and grace. Jesus came to dismantle the tribal and religious boundaries that would allow these blasphemies. Jesus came to tear down the walls of division, to break the silence of injustice and to usher in a whole new creation. Jesus created a new, always open border when he said, my family is anyone who seeks to live, to love in the wisdom and the way of God. By God's grace, we receive this good news and the call to follow Jesus. And if we do try to follow Jesus, there's a good chance that we will find ourselves in good trouble. But that trouble is always for a purpose. It's to live in and to work for the freedom of the kingdom of God for all. And when, as a result of following Jesus, people challenge you, they unfriend you on Facebook, they treat you like you are ridiculous, they slander and defame you, they call you naive or uninformed or downright sinful for where you stand or with whom you stand or for who you are, then remember that you are in good company. Jesus has been there and done that. And because Jesus has shown us the way, because Jesus has lived and loved and taught, 
and died and rose again, we can rejoice in the truth that we can trust the promise, the message, the gospel truth that we ourselves are beloved children of God, siblings in the beloved clan, not only given a place at the family table, but honored as participants in the work of widening the circle in making more and more room eternally until humankind from every race, gender, identity, culture, orientation, ethnicity, ability, and creed can sing and not just sing, but mean the song when they say, we, we, we are family. May God give us grace and spirit power to keep drawing the circle wider till all are safe till all have enough, till no one has to live in fear. Amen. <laughs>